this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice podcast, and we're here today to do something called lived experience conversation. As the Restorative Community Coalition, we have made a commitment to our community to start talking with real people living with the real problems that we're dealing with in our community over the next year. And part of that was to look at talking to people of multicultural backgrounds, multidisciplinary backgrounds, multiple caste system. I know that people in America think that we don't have a caste system, but we've discovered to our shock that we absolutely do. It's an overcast, a mid-caste, and an uh, undercast system of civic rankism. And within that conversation, the coalition members, several of us, were attending one of our uh, community meetings last night in Whatcom County, Washington, where two members of a particular party were talking about how they were supporting the idea of building a new jail and passing a tax, even though they didn't necessarily know what size the jail should be. They had all come to the agreement that we need to pass a tax and then we'll plan how big the jail was and all this other stuff happened. And we realized that for our coalition and for people across the nation, there's this whole huge movement, talk about violence, about guns and gates and how we need to protect ourselves. And then there's this other whole, whole conversation about how we need to build bigger jails and immigration. And all these things are sort of mixed up together. So we want today to have you to introduce you to some of our members as they come on, they can use their name or not, and to talk about what happened last night. So who wants to start talking about what happened in this larger conversation, this larger context of Whatcom County? So I'd be glad to, Joy. Okay, thank you. Introduce yourself just briefly and give a summation, because I know you've been involved in the political movement here and you've been studying civics and you've been in business, you've been in um, commercial enterprises on big business level, community corporation level, et cetera. Talk to us about who you are in just a sentence or two, but then given a, a feedback on what happened last night. Sure. Um, I'm an engineer and I've been involved in the private sector uh, from when I graduated from college till about seven or eight years ago. And um, now uh, in the last seven or eight years, I've become increasingly involved in local government. And uh, I'm, I'm a local elected and um, <clears throat> I'm increasing my awareness and education on issues that are happening in our local community. And part of that has been to become over the last three or four years, very involved in the conversations around 
the jail and justice. And I've been um, a volunteer on several committees. And last night, uh, we all attended a uh, conversation on uh, a jail that uh, for which they want to put in place a tax levy to fund a new jail. And uh, our community is not alone. There's many communities where similar efforts are underway. And our concern as a group, the uh, RCC, is to make sure that we think about the systems and the preservation of humanity in what we do around the justice system. And um, having said that, I, next I'm just going to hop into a description of the event. The event was put on by a, a group called Indivisible Bellingham. Uh, it had an interesting structure. It was, there were three speakers who each gave a presentation and then some note cards with questions on them that were addressed by um, the speakers, depending on what the question was. The person who handed out the note cards was uh, one of the three presenters. Uh, well, one of the things that was interesting about it is that the first presenter and the second presenter were coming from a pro-jail position. The first presenter was, is, was from uh, a local newspaper called Cascadia. And that um, presenter um, claimed to be impartial, but in fact, if you read his articles, he's very much in favor of a new jail um, and a, a large new jail. The second presenter was the chair of the county council and is one who's in, our, who's in a local elected most involved in overseeing the activities to plan and build a big new jail. And the third presenter was the chair of the Wacom Dems who's been a vocal opponent of um, mass incarceration. So um, of the three presenters, um, the, the, uh, so the gentleman who works for the paper went first and the county council member went second. And the, uh, the, the uh, opponent of, of mass incarceration um, went third. So I would say that it was um, uh, a very educational and informational. There was a lot of things that were said that uh, um, we would have, as a group, probably would have significant issue with, um, but also some things that I think were constructive and positive, particularly in the presentation of the third speaker when he talked about the problems of mass incarceration and how, um, Diversion alone is not um, uh, going to solve the problem, although it's very important. Uh, there, there is a trend in communities that when, when bigger jails get built, those bigger jails get filled by the prosecutor and the sheriff. And so I think he made a persuasive argument, probably the most persuasive argument of the night was that argument, is that building big is a mistake because the system has a way of filling that jail. The bigger it is, the more they fill it. So, um, certainly a, um, a topic of uh, for rich discussion. Well, that's my summary of the event. Um, I, I personally, um, being a, uh, on the board of the RCC, uh, have long believed that uh, 
humanity is delivered by humans. We take too much of a facility focus and improvements to our justice system and not enough of how do we support uh, a greater level of humanity. And that isn't provided by furniture. That isn't provided by um, uh, walls. It's provided by people. And um, too often we neglect the importance of, of how we empower people to support other people. Because I think that's really in our nature to support each other. So thank you very much, Atul, for giving us that feedback. It's very useful for have objective overview pictures of what's going on. And one of the things that I noticed during the course of last night's conversation, and I'd like to invite other people that were there to speak to this as well, I noticed that in the setup of the whole conversation was that the reporter who allegedly was reporting on the facts of things was absolutely biased to the pr promoting of the building of the jail because he called it in his very articles. He's been using college students to give perspectives and yet he feeds them ideas. And the title of one of the things had to do with how do we get taxes or whatever for a failed jail. So his point in the presentation was to scapegoat the jail itself as if the jail was to blame the building of the jail and the nature of the jail and the power of the jail was it was a fault of the building itself. So he displaced the blame to a building that was poorly constructed in his opinion, yet he was not there and he didn't have the evidence that shows that the building was perfectly fine when it was built. So right. the, the articles, just to be support that point, Joy, the articles, if you read them in the Cascadia Daily, are clearly pro-jail. Uh, They're written by the author's name and the person on the panel's name is Ralph Schwartz. And uh, it's interesting to, to rely on college students because although they, it's good to have different voices, the thing that you began this conversation with was a talk about lived experience. Um, and I'd like to explain that the, the students have very little opportunity for lived experience of, about realities in Whatcom County. And one of the most important questions I was asked that night is how was diversity and or lived experience captured in the uh, meetings that led to, to this whole effort? And I'm sad to say that I personally am the most, I, uh, the only person representing any kind of diversity in those committees. And of course, I was the sole dissenter in the uh, recommendations of the committee. And so uh, the reality is, is that I've grown up in a very sheltered, very suburban, very educated, very protected context. And I, and I'm not ashamed of my background, I'm proud of it. But at the same time, I wanted people there that actually were affected by the justice system in all the committees. And in fact, the people that have been voicing have all the power in the meetings and the conversations and the recommendations have been insiders who work for the criminal justice system and although their opinions matter, 
if you're going to design a system for people that are being incarcerated or rehabilitated, you would think that those people would be the number one priority. And it's true that there have been efforts to capture the people with the inputs of people with those backgrounds. But the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter whether you try or not. If you don't get their input, you've still failed. That's and absolutely, so, yes. So um, to, uh, that was a very important question I was asked last night. And to address kind of the motivation of this conversation is how are we listening? The answer is that we're not listening. And we're, we're not getting the input of those who have lived experience. And that makes it a lot harder for a process to be successful. When your foundation stones are rotten or misplaced, it's really hard to build a solid structure. And that's really true. And I think that's key to what we're talking about here, because people rely on our news reporters when our news reporters allege to be impartial. And yet, when you understand spin doctoring, you understand that there are people who are paid news reporters, paid people who actually do have a power of influence, and they have the power to wield the pen, and they have the power to choose who they're interviewing. Part of the problem with this news reporter is that he used as his source of information the very sheriff who is lobbying to get a jail because he mismanaged the jail from an operational standpoint, and now he wants to cover his tracks by simply buying a new, new jail. Now, I'm not saying that because I have that as an opinion. I'm saying that because our second speaker of the night actually admitted that the jail has been mismanaged. The facts came out later on in the conversation that the, the bad operations of the jail actually led to the inhumane conditions inside the jail. And the cover-up was to pretend that the jail was poorly built in the first place, which actually is also not true. And the, and the young people were used as the shimmy as the people in the center to make the report. But what could they say if the information provided to them, the authority upon which they're doing their reports and the people they're interviewing are also all faulty at its basis. So thank you for pointing that out. That's a real analysis of what is the source of your information, who's providing the facts, who's given the authority, and who is believable. And if that is skewed to um, a perspective, that's called spin doctoring in media. So with that said, I'd like to take a quick break and come back because I want to talk about the second speaker and where that came in, because I think that, Irene, you probably have something to say about the information that was provided factually by uh, the second person. Yeah, I have. Today's podcast is being brought to you by the Restorative Community Coalition, a nonprofit organization committed to serving the voiceless, especially those silenced by civic trauma. We received contributions from the community to fund research, education, direct services, mentoring, case interception, court navigation, restorative justice, and more. Beyond our operating costs, our long-term capital goal is to build the Restore a Life Center, a hub for housing, employment, education, 
life skills recovery, including a farm for sustainable living. It is designed to help our community reduce civic trauma, mitigate conflict, promote rehabilitation, and encourage regenerative local living economic development. Please donate at the restorativecommunity.org. Irene, welcome back to the call. And let's have you speak about what you perceived was going on during the course of those three speakers yesterday or last night and how this affects other people in the world to look at what's going on. Thank you, Joy. As usual, it's a very interesting subject and I thank everybody for tuning in to, to listen to our side and, and our views of what we experience within our community. I was very... I don't go out much to these kinds of things. So I was very uh, pleased to see the number of people in attendance, which was probably 150 people in the room. And I understand it was also um, viewed by people electronically. So we don't really know how many viewers there were, but um, the three speakers were very interesting. And it was obvious to me because of the work I've done in the, in the community all these years that um, the newspaper person was very biased, and um, and as I listened to our council member speak, um, there were some items that I knew were not completely true, and um, uh, there were lots of items and and um, facts missing, like how big the jail was going to be, where it was going to be built. Apparently that's all been decided, but it was not announced last night by the people that that knew those facts or that, that knew the process and what had been decided. And that's when the third speaker comes in. Um, and he shared with the audience some of those facts, the size and the placement of the jail. And um, so that excited me very much because from my and I and I know I haven't been everywhere but from my experience we the coalition and and people that support us are the only ones that have been speaking this kind of thing until from my from my experience until last night and I was very very encouraged that someone had the courage to actually speak it publicly and let those in power know that um, the wool has not been pulled over our eyes and the sack is not fully on our head. So um, as a community and um, the train is still in the station and the boat has not pulled out of the Harbor. Things are still not settled. They think they are, but the community, there was a lot of people in that room the, the majority of those people in that room do not agree with what has been going on. And it all has, it all has to do with the court system. It's feeding the jail. A bail, uh, bail reform was brought up. I totally agree with bail reform. It's happening all over our, our country. So why is it not happening here in our little neck of the woods, in our fourth corner? And... Um, uh, the third person, the uh, Andrew, who's from the Dems, also is in favor of a jail, but not a large jail. And so I gave him information after the meeting 
that he di- he did not have. And I don't know that he fully understands it because he was on his way out the door. Um, but I asked him if he was aware of the original uh, mechanical drawings, the, the original plans for the jail support the and the foundation of the current jail building has support for two more stories on that building. So they can do a, a remodel of the, of the current jail along with adding those two additional stories and have all the light and air and, and all the things they want and need, except they want a horizontal structure. So, um, and in some of the talks where we were, it was there was one jail planner that said it makes no difference whether you have a vertical or a horizontal structure, you can have the same kind of of safety in either kind of structure. But his his voice was not heard. His his report was stuck under the, the pile of the ones that, that wanted the vertical style. But it but it's on it was on record. So what's interesting, Irene, is that what you were talking about here is the, the power of deception and the power of illusion that is carried to the public story by those who have the gavel, those who have the power of the pen or those who have the power of authority, like the political or the middle caste authority, or the power of those who can control the rules. For example, and I, I just want to weave this back in because the reporter who has the power of the pen to influence people can use the power of the authority, the sheriff, to authenticate whatever he reports. And then he can skew the story. So when the public shows up or reads things, they have a biased perception, but it looks authentic. The second one is when then the county Um, the head of the county council comes in and uses the power of his prestige and his privilege as the leader of the pack or the leader of the middle caste, the the popular vote, like he's, he's popularized and he's seen as the protector of the people. He can tell whatever story the upper caste or the overcast, as I call them, so he's in charge of the midcast. So he can he can skew the story to make the people who are the voters and who are the politicians and the people who pay money for elected officials to win or lose. He can control the story for the public so that it gets whitewashed through the system. And then the third person who was actually the head of a public party, but his particular position was that this actually could hurt the political party. So his position in coming on board is to talk about the dehumanizing of the system, that the mass incarceration system is a failure and we need to slow down. And he brought very, very powerful and very crucial reports forward to talk about how humanizing our systems is crucial, how we need to stop the bail bail bonds how we can actually change things policy making wise that could improve the situation. So all three have a pre-agenda, they have a bias, they have a perspective to speak from, 
And yet the people in the audience and you, Irene, who have been going to court and you've been watching what's actually happening in the courtroom with people with lived experience, and those of us who are sitting here in the Restorative Community Coalition, we've been studying and looking at the actual effects of, on the human people who are not only paying the bills, but we're subject to the costs of failure and we're dealing with real public problems. And yet we were not represented at that debate and we have not been represented or able to speak because we're either the people of color or the people of that have been marginalized or the people have been silenced by the system. So is that, you know, what have I said there that some of the rest of you on the call would like to illuminate? And I, am I speaking pretty clearly about what we're talking about here? Yes, Joy, I think so. And hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. My name is Debbie. I'm on the board. Um, one of the things that came up listening to this discussion is an unfortunate sales tactic I learned many years ago when I was brand new to car sales. And but this pattern seems to be consistent when anything that is brought forward um, is lopsided. So in negotiations, they don't call it a mistruth or a lie when you're speaking and trying to convince people of a particular viewpoint. They call it selective disclosure of information. And I think that's definitely a pattern that we've been seeing throughout this process over these years that we've been involved in trying to bring forward the whole picture, bring forth the ability and a different way to resolve our social disruptions with the greatest humanity possible. And we know this can be done differently. We've brought forward solutions time and again. Um, and yet we are um, often cast aside because that's not, that doesn't fit into their false narrative plan. So that's all for me for now. Thank you, Debbie. I think that's, that's really important. So it's, it's manipulated disclosure or selective disclosure, and we don't want to talk about it because as a polite society, We've been conditioned in a dominative system to be silent. We've been conditioned to be told, don't talk about that here because it's not tasteful. And so we've been manipulated into not telling the truth about many things that are necessary to tell the truth about. And so part of this process of false disclosure or of domination is the same thing that can oftentimes happen in domestic violence situations. And in domestic violence situations, we like to cover up the truth and pretend that everything is fine so that the status and the condition of the problem doesn't ever have to actually be addressed. And that creates a major problem with a country that was born and raised on a dominator system in the first place, when the doctrine of discoveries happened and people moved from the um, um, Eastern hemisphere or the European hemisphere to the Western hemisphere on the, on the, in the um, planet, 
we were taught that indigenous people were less than they were in fact dehumanized and there was a money game that was implemented at that time that put the people of higher rank higher authority higher power higher higher privilege in the driver's seat and our entire system is replicating that and that's what we're noticing today with the amount of mental illness the amount of abuse the amount of poverty that we're dealing with and it's these are very difficult subjects to talk about so we try to pretend that we can wash those those subjects and we can't that's what the intentional change podcast here intentional change justice podcast is all about it's talking about real living problems real real solutions that we have to bring forward as a collaborative of people and i'd like to take a quick break right now and we'll be right back to talk about this for the third segment of our podcast. Are you a member of patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts? As a patron, you can support the production of the I Change Justice podcast series. You can also support the Restorative Community Coalition, get our news, updates, and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis. So let's come back to the third segment of our episode. I would like to invite Um, Irene back to talk about not only how does this addiction pattern of (laughs) cover-up, you know, how does that perpetuate itself, but how does it in fact stop us from being able to seek and find solutions that are outside the box? Go ahead, Irene. Thank you. People have called me Pollyanna and all sorts of things, and I'm, I'm proud to wear the labels. Um, uh, but I'm not naive enough to know and to to realize that there are people out there that that need to be um, incarcerated or at least kept safe for themselves and from the public for the public. And I know there are folks out there that are doing really wild and crazy things right now. And uh, and there's a reason, but I'm not going to go into that. It's it's all trauma. It's all. Um, it's all from the allowances and the, the and uh, but what I do know is from the work that I've done with in the courts by by going there with our clients and and just paying attention, um, I know that when people are given a chance, uh, I would say ninety five percent take that chance. And it's because someone cares and someone sees their value. And our system does not do that at any at any intersection that I have seen, at least not here in our county. Unless it's something that they want to publicize or tout about. But most of them are, are token programs. Most of them don't help the masses. And it is not, we do not have a continuum of services. And it's better than it was just a couple of years ago because of our our newly in, implemented programs because of the task force and because of Vera Institute and their their report on our system. But the vast majority of people are traumatized to a point where they are in survival mode and they must survive in any way they can, whether it's still stealing a loaf of bread from the grocery store or going in in a gang and cleaning up on a on a big fancy luxury store. 
Is it right? Absolutely. It is not right. But what we are doing as a society is not right. We are, we have taken the poorest people and those include, of course, our, our um, minority populations. And we have traumatized them to a point that many of them will have great difficulty returning. But I believe it's possible. I have great hope for our future. That's why I do this work, because I know that we can come out of this. And when we change our policies, when we change our system, when we quit trying to jail everything to righteousness, into rightness, it will change and it will change fast. And it will be our new pandemic. It will be our new virus. Because it is right action. And right action for all is my motto. And until it, and unless we do it, it won't change. However, I know we, we are in the process of changing it. That's what all of our work is about. That's what Joy's work is about. And the other thing I'd like to say before I don't have the mic anymore <laughs> is, <laughs> is um, it took me a while. I knew there was something wrong. And I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record. Um, and I just kept looking at it and I looked at it and I looked at it and I, when I'd look at it, I would become very emotional and, and I'd st stuff it away back in my, in my bag. Cause I didn't want to look at it and then it creep forward and I'd look at it again. It, I can't tell you how many years it took me to realize that and when I first started this, everyone says, oh, yeah, I know the system's broken and we just don't know what to do about it. We don't have any solutions. Well, then I started saying, we have solutions. I know what's wrong. We know what's wrong. We have to help these people. It took me a long time to realize and to admit to myself that the system is not broken. It never has been broken. It is working exactly the way it is designed to work. And I watched a video by Gabor Mate the other day, and he says, if you, if you want to incarcerate people or if you want to keep people uh, from prospering, develop a system exactly like we have in our mass incarceration. And you've got the perfect solution to keeping people underdeveloped. So what's interesting, Irene, is that what you're talking about is the system works for the system. The system is embedded in a domination system that we inherited from thousands of years ago. <clears throat> and as long as we continue to reinforce the system because we're afraid to look at the truth, we can't change the system. So the only way to get out of the system, and what I realized last night in watching the speakers is that they don't know a way out. So therefore they stay in the, the system and we can call it a cover-up. It's actually survival because they're afraid just like the other people are afraid to get out of the system because they, they're scared too. So fear is the dominating energy and it's fear on capital F, capital E, capital A, capital R. We have a fractured emotional or economic system 
that appears real. And until we get out of the story of it, it's called story trapping that we'll talk about on another episode. But until we get out of the system and we actually go belief below the radar and talk to us as humans, what is it that we can do to humanize ourselves, humanize our systems, rebuild ourselves and heal the hurts that a broken civic system, it is a broken civic system. And it's broken because we let it be broken. We have a choice and we can change it. We can regenerate. And I'd like to open it up to, to the other couple of people that are on the call here. If you want to speak about this, any part of it. I'd like to say something before we go on. Joy, you have been talking <clears throat> for quite a while now about, <clears throat> excuse me, um, about how, how all of this happens. And um, it's not that they, they, the powers that be have known about this because it's happening all over the United States. And sure. there are enough meetings with enough groups that they have to know about it. And, and you've been talking for quite a while now about addictions. And it's my belief, and it's because I, I have been an addict. I was a foodaholic which is really, really difficult. And I'm not saying none of the others are. All addictions are, are difficult. But what I see here is an addiction to power and control. And for whatever whatever the, the prize and trophy is, I'm not sure, but that's, that's what all of this points to for me. And uh, because it's, it's really... Um, for, for us to continue to keep people in bondage the way our incarceration system and our court system does is, is really difficult for me to even look at because that's not how I work. I'm, I'm the helper. I always want to see how people can, can flourish because that I believe is our nature to flourish with so, help from others if need be. So the addiction that we're going to be talking about in the coming episodes is an addiction to beliefs, the false beliefs that some people are superior and some people are not. The um, behavior that we've become accustomed to, the repetitive nature of that behavior, and it's basically power, privilege, and prestige but it's all measured by money in the economic system. So if we want to change the system, we have to look at all of those elements without the silencing. And that's been the big problem that we've been dealing with. So coming out from our silencing, I think uh, one of our other members here on the call wants to talk about that. Eve, welcome to the call. Hi, um, I'm Evimai or Eve, and I'm a member of the of the coalition and there was a couple of things I wanted to to mention and yes the silencing that's that's something that's really um affected so many people um and not just people of different race or color or different status but everyone everyone gets silenced even uh people of of means and people of resources, because when when 
there's different things, issues within the system that are recognized, then um, they get and they get silenced. They're not able to speak. And so this is something that affects all. Um, I was wanting to speak on something about maybe looking into how to devise a protection only budget where the budget that we're working with would only provide would only be used to provide protection are you Instead, talking are you talking about tax budgets and as a systems wide budget conversation yes okay let's talk about that okay so um so there's a lot of different policies and there's a lot of different guidelines and there's a lot of different um, you know, agendas that are used in order to create a budget. So what are we going to use the money for? Um, we're going to create this law because it's going to, it's going to um, provide certain, certain privileges or certain resources to certain people or, or create different laws that can suppress and silence people. But when there's a budget that is only that is only being used to provide protection to the people as opposed to having big budgets for prisons or big budgets for uh, different things that really don't serve the people, then um, then there really is there a need for it? What are what are these what is whether the money is being used for? Are they used being used for certain agendas? Are they being used to harm people or keep people marginalized or divided? What are, do we really need them? So you're really talking about looking at the purpose of taxes in the first place. You know, it's funny. I had a I had a thought. I had a conversation with myself one time. I sat back and I went, "Why is there so many taxes?" I mean, our politician last night, you know, talked about a couple of taxes that were passed. Well, during the same period of time that they started pushing to build this great big jail, there's actually five or six different taxes that were passed, and they didn't talk about all those taxes and where all that capital money is going. And he talked about how there's never enough money. And so, no, there is never enough money if what you're doing is overspending and mismanaging the money on building real estate and high cost buildings and high intensity problems if you're constantly just feeding the voracious appetite which is in the realm of hungry ghosts that again Gabor Mate talks about the addiction to taxes and tax money to continue to perpetuate a false belief is in fact part of the problem we've got so what you're talking about Eve is why do we pay taxes in the first place until I started looking at the question I didn't even think to look at. I had a presumptive belief that everybody who was in government that's in says they're in fiduciary and fiscal responsibility. I thought they actually that that was true. And then when I did, I looked at it and I went, "Wow, I give money to these people for protecting us. I give money to help people who are harmed. I give money willingly. I'm very eager to give money to the first responders." because they're gonna take care of the seniors and the people who are in an accident and who need help. But I didn't intend for my money to be used to build huge cathedrals to punishment. I did not, I did not approve that. That's not where I meant the money to go. And when I started to understand the skewed nature of how we use money, 
it's a bad idea. So we've only got a couple minutes left on the call here. We can have another conversation about the economics of the prison industrial com complex, the economics of tax addiction, of elitism and all of this stuff. More of this will come out in the next few uh, episodes. But who wants to say some closing comments about any of this? Are we pretty complete? I'd be interested in what Mel might have to say from last night. Uh, sorry, folks, uh, just being able to come in a little late to hear all the wonderful things that have been going on. What, all I know is that I found myself, as I was experiencing the evening, going through several stages of listening for the truth and who was telling it and who wasn't. And so I had these different scenarios and kind of uh, uh, the scripts almost. Of, and I began to even say to myself, okay, what they're probably gonna say next about this in terms of why we should be for it and hear the rationales and the psychological understandings that they were trying to shape. And then I heard Andrew and some others come forward and in a very gentle, no, I shouldn't say gentle, the very astute way, uh, offer an alternative understanding of how one could see it publicly in terms of what was going on. And to experience that and to feel the shift in the room uh, and to sense what was happening with the bodies of people as he began to lay out and say, well, you said this, but oh, here, and pulled out some data and says, but that's not what this said. And this was what somebody didn't say before. And I was sitting there, kept saying, they kept saying, we gathered the folks who really understand this problem to be part of this panel. And I looked and said, well, wait a minute, but where's RCC? These are the folks who've been living this and understanding it, and they're not on the stage. And then I began to hear Andrew, I said, oh, oh, he's saying some of the things saying that RCC has discovered and putting it out there in a public way with another voice in a way. So that's so part of that was experiencing in that simple couple hours what I experienced as a people having a various perspectives and senses, knowing they should be there, but not clear where it was going to go, and then experiencing the shift as it moved to people beginning wanting to jump up or raise questions and intervene, because the structure was such is we're going to tell you, we'll let you have a few questions at the end, but we're not going to have a dialogue. It was not set up that way. And it turned into a dialogue anyway, out of some of it through nonverbals, and quite honestly, some of it through more verbals than were polite by the format, but absolutely right in terms of human response. And so I think that's part of it, those taking our understanding of what we did and saw and what we can do. If we can help other people, uh, Irene, I was hearing you again talking about your learning and what your experience was and how it shifted because you just simply didn't believe some things. And therefore, if you didn't believe it, you couldn't see it differently. And so right now, a whole lot of people can't believe how things really work. And so what we have to do, it's like the old issue, I'm sorry, I don't, be, don't arrest me for animal cruelty, but it's a little bit, if you know a mule, you can't get a mule's attention unless you, you smack him on the nose, so to speak, so they pay attention. And then you might get them to do something differently. And that's kind of what I was experiencing right now in our community, 
that we need to be able to help people to say, help people save themselves. We need to be able to smack them on the nose a little bit so they can hear and see what will really actually be able to help them. And I hope nobody thinks that's cruel, but that was my sense of the evening and, and a lot of celebration afterwards in terms of people saying, wait a minute, something's going on here. We got a, our ears are perked up. We better pay attention to what's happening. So what I heard you say, Mel, and we've only got a minute or two left here, but what I heard you say is that we started the conversation with a story last night. Then we illuminated on the story from the highest elite class talking about how we think we did it all right because we crossed off all the boxes. And then another person came in and said, no, we haven't done it all right. We've missed the point because here's the statistics and here's a different way of looking at it. So that was like a smacking on the nose. But following that, because there were a few questions that were answered, it illuminated in our own community how important it is that we start listening to the silenced, that we actually start listening to the people who are paying the price for all of this mass incarceration. Who's actually paying the cost? Who's paying the first and secondary costs? Who's paying for the amount of taxes that are then being used and going into the banking system? That conversation hasn't even been brought up yet. But it's like, where is the money really going and who's getting it? And I think Eve, by bringing up the idea of where is the money being used and putting some guardrails around, let's use the money for protecting of humans, not the building of prisons or jails or buildings or the hiring of systems that are not human. We need to actually do the use for humanizing the real issues and enriching the lives of human people. So with that, I'd like to close this conversation today. Thank you all for joining us. More conversations will be coming as we talk about the business of justice in a whole new way. We're going to be talking about collaboratives, um, cooperatives, how to think about things in a way that resources people instead of just locks them up. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.